Hey, uh, this week is cool because we are coming back on week two of this series we kicked off last week, all about the book of Colossians. And don't worry if you weren't here, I will get you caught up. Although I would tell you, go back and check out that message if you weren't here, because these do all build on each other as we go through this. Uh, But I will get you caught up if you were wondering. So we're going through this book of Colossians, and this is uh, towards the second half of our New Testament that we have. And the book of Colossians was written by this guy who is named Paul. He's kind of a big deal in the New Testament. He was originally named Saul, Jewish guy, met Jesus, converted, started planting churches all around the Mediterranean, and God did amazing things through him. What's interesting about this book, basically all these books that we have that are Ian's, if you've ever wondered, if you ever looked through the New Testament, and you see like Ephesians, Colossians, all these, you're like, what is that? They were to the people of that city. So Colossians were to the people of Colossae, or Ephesians was to the people of Ephesus, just like Lasallians or Peruvians or whatever it is you might be from around here, right? So he wrote this to the, to the, to the church of uh, Colossae. But what's interesting is he actually never went to, the, to Colossae. He didn't plant this church. He was doing ministry 100 miles away in a town named Ephesus. And this guy named Epaphras started this church because he saw what was happening and he believed it should happen in his hometown. Five years into this, about A.D. 60, 30 years after Jesus died, This guy, Epaphras, comes to Paul, who is in prison in Rome, and says, I need you to write a letter to the people of this church. Here's the reason why. He says, we're about five years old, and there's all this kind of fighting as far as what's going on inside the church. And he says, I need you to clarify what is going on. And this is why he writes this letter, okay? Here's what he says. Epaphras comes and says, there's these two groups of people. And they're fighting against each other as to what's going to happen in the church. The Jewish legalists are there, and they're saying we need to add a whole bunch more Jewish law to everything we believe in order to be faithful. And he says the Gnostics are there, and the Gnostics, they're all about new knowledge. And he says they think there's a whole bunch of new teaching that's coming from other people, that Jesus was good, but you know, there's these other teachings that we need to add into. And he says it, it's just a mess. I need you to speak to this. And I brought it till today's language for you last week if you were here. I said it's really easy for you to understand. It's that the Jewish legalists were the conservatives and Gnostics were the liberals in the church, okay? The conservatives go, there has to be more rules, right? They're, they're, obviously, there has to be this rule and it has to be this rule. And the liberals are like, oh man, there's, there's like this new knowledge. And don't worry about the rules. There's, there's new things that are happening. And I said last week, if this makes you uncomfortable, depending on where you sit with that, don't worry. They were both wrong, okay? So whatever side you look, you can look across the aisle and be like, oh, those people. Well, they were wrong. So you can feel good about yourself. Problem is, you're also wrong in regards to what the situation is. That's why he spoke to it. He says, both of them are coming, and they're both trying to steer this in a different direction. I need you to write this letter. And he writes this letter to the church of Colossae. And as I said, Paul writes a letter to a church that he has never met, that's young with new believers, that's surrounded by conservative and liberal theology. And I, of course, said, perhaps that means he's writing this letter to Acts Church, because that is basically us, okay? We're this, a church that he's never met, young but new believers, surrounded by different theology as far as that idea, so applicable to us. So as I've invited you last week, this week, I would love to invite you to read through this book with me, okay? We have paper Bibles in the back that you can grab for free if you don't have one. If you are more of an electronics type person, go on in your app store and search version. Download it to your phone and get the Bible on your phone. And I would love to invite you, as we're going through this, this week and in the coming weeks, pull up your phone and open up Colossians or open up your Bible and go to that area because we're not jumping around a whole bunch like a lot of other sermons where we're giving different things that are bringing into it. We're just going through this section, and I think it's important for you to see it, okay? 
So I'd love for you to do that. Go through, get that app, go through it, and look through it with us, okay? Here's where we covered last week. This is what Paul started off the book of Colossians to them. He said, as you're all talking about this guy named Jesus, here's what I need you to get as a foundation. Jesus is incredibly more powerful and personal than you imagine. That was what we said week one. He said, you're talking about this guy named Jesus. I need you to get that he's incredibly more powerful than you imagine. We talked about how Jesus is the eternally existing creator of everything, purpose of everything, sustainer of everything, first in everything, solution to all sin. Hardcore, he is all throughout. He's the reason why everything exists. And then at the exact same time, Paul steers into this idea that he is an extremely personal God as well, that this God who breathed stars that are billions of times bigger than this earth chooses to live inside of you. Fascinating to think about. He's this incredibly powerful and personal God. This week, he's going to start going into the why that he wrote this letter. He laid the foundation first. He said, let me explain this Jesus that you're talking about, and let me go from here. Let me say this, okay? Just for reference, so you wonder why I think this is so important. Because he is going to talk about this in just one second, and pretty much the rest of the message, and in the coming weeks, you'll hear this as well. There's these, in the, in the Church of Colossae, there's these Jewish legalists, and there are these Gnostics coming from two different perspectives. And this is exactly how I feel at Acts Church all the time. If I could be honest with you, and if you think like, hey, I like Acts Church, this is a church I want to be a part of, let me just give you a warning before you even decide that, okay? We get a lot of hate as a church. A lot of hate. You know why? The people who are the very conservative people, they look at us and go, those liberal churches, they're, they have, did you see that they have lights on their stage? Jesus didn't need no lights. They don't need no, they had a drummer, they were playing, and they had this loud music, and the pastor, he's wearing jeans, and, and, you know, we don't don't follow those type, and they they go, oh, don't go to that church. We we jokingly said, sometimes we wanted to call ourselves X Church, the church that your pastor warns you about, okay? Well, that's, that's us, okay? At the exact same time, on the other side of the scale, we have people with extremely liberal theology that go, Acts Church, they're so conservative. I mean, they actually believe like this is the word of God and that like it's, it's infallible. Like they don't, when, when we talk about the idea, like, well, certainly, I mean, the ideas have to change as we change. They're like, no, it doesn't. And they're like, that's ridiculous. I mean, they are so narrow-minded as a church. They're so conservative. And it's hilarious because here we sit in a place in the middle where we get hate from both sides all the time as a church. And I just want to let you know that's the reality of being part of X Church. And to be honest with you, it's actually what I kind of like. So um, we'll go forward from that. Paul starts off by saying this. He, he gives us the idea of why he is doing this letter. It is just going to be up here or in your hands. I cut the side screens because I wanted you to either look at your phone, your Bible, or up here. Okay, if you're wondering. They're not, the team is not slacking. I told them not to put up lyrics on the side screen if you're wondering, okay? He gives the idea of why he's writing this letter at the beginning of Colossians 2. He says this. I want you to know how much I've agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who've never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. He says, I want you to know what Christ's plan is, how we can do what God's plan is, and it is actually just Jesus. If you're wondering, it's actually Jesus. He is the plan. In him, meaning Jesus, 
lie hidden all the treasures of the wisdom of wisdom, excuse me, and knowledge. I'm telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. And here in verse 4 is the reason why the whole rest of the letter is going to come about. He set the foundation and he says, here's what it is. The reason why he's writing is because he's telling these things so that no one will deceive them with well-crafted arguments. There were people coming from both sides. There were people coming from the legalist side who were saying, well, there has to be more that we have to do. There has to be more rules. There has to be more things we follow. And there were people coming from the Gnostic side who were saying, well, there's new knowledge that's coming out. And I feel this. And, and I disagree with that. So there must be some new knowledge that's coming. And he says, people are going to start to bring all of these other well-crafted arguments, but I do not want you to be distracted by them. I want to point you back to where the true source, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge is. And I will just give this to you right off the bat, the main point of what we're going to look at today, and then I'll backfill it from there in regards to what it is. Here's the reason why he's writing this letter, and here's what we need to know about Colossians 2. He's saying this, there is nothing more than Jesus. He's saying, there is nothing more than Jesus. Because that's what's being brought up at this time. This idea that there's these other ideas that are coming out. In fact, as he just continues in Colossians, here's what he says, okay? And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth that you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from spiritual powers of this world rather than Christ. He says there's going to be a lot of this philosophy. And listen, okay? It's not that philosophy is bad. He's saying it's not that there might not be truth in there, but they are empty philosophies. And here's what I mean. A philosophy might state a truth, but a philosophy is never the source of truth. Oh, it might say something that ends up being true, but it's speaking a truth that actually is rooted somewhere else. He's saying there's this high-sounding talk that's going to come, but he says, I want you to get this, okay? In Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. He says there will be all this different philosophy that's going to come out, right? He says they're going to be saying all these different thoughts, but I want you to focus on Jesus because there really is nothing more than him. In fact, here's what he says. He is the fullness of God in a human body. All of who God is, all of his wisdom, all of his character is inside of Christ. And he says, listen, if you have a relationship with him, you also are then complete through your union with him. This word complete is astounding. Did you know that that sentence would not be in any other holy text in the world? None. No other faith that you could study, no other, if you wanted to go around and take a, a class on every other faith that's in the world, I guarantee you that sentence would not exist inside of it. You know why? Because all faith basically follows the same pattern. You have something wrong with you. There is a very, very good God beyond this life. And in order to grow close to him, you need to learn about him and you need to try your very best to balance the scales of the things that are wrong with you. And all of them will agree if you actually corner somebody who is part of any of these other philosophies and world religions, they will say, if you said, are you sure that you will actually go on to an eternity that is positive and not negative, they will all admit no. 
You do your very best and you hope. But that's all you have. You can't actually know whether you had accomplished this. And Christianity stands completely aside from every other world religion in which Paul says, if you have union with Christ, you are complete. Complete. He says that it's not about you chasing down all these things. It's not about you accomplishing all these things. You are actually complete through Christ when you meet him, that he is the fullness of God. But this isn't what the people were saying in Colossae. They were talking about this man named Jesus. But the Gnostics were coming and saying this, okay? Jesus, okay, but there's got to be more around him somewhere, right? I mean, it's, but there's new wisdom over here and up here, and, and there's some new words that are coming in. Jesus was an emanation from God, maybe, but there's this other stuff, and, and you're not complete. There's much more knowledge that we can get from some other philosophy and some other thought process, and, you know, I think this, and, and I, I believe this, right? And, of course, in our modern-day situation, for people who maybe are more liberal, they would be saying, well, you know, the Bible really needs to be updated to our modern, you know, thought process. I mean, that's old-fashioned, there's this. And I mean, I don't feel that. And obviously, if I feel different than how God says, I mean, that might, that, that hurts my feelings. And if it hurts my feelings, it has to be wrong, right? Because that's our current culture, isn't it? If it hurts my feelings, it has to be wrong. That's what I've been noticing lately. It doesn't really matter. If it hurts their feelings, it's like, well, you must be wrong. Your kids, don't let them believe that crap, right? Knock them around a little bit. Like, no, feelings... But then the other people who are the Jewish legalists, they're over there and they're like, oh, well, but there's more after him. There has to be more that we stack up on top of this and beyond. Because, I mean, there has to be some rules and there has to be, it can't just be Jesus. It can't be complete in that because you got to do this and you got to do this and you got to do this. And the conservatives nowadays are doing the same thing where they're like, well, but you know, like you got to follow this rule and you got to do this thing and you got to celebrate this ceremony and you got to do this at this time and you can't do that and you can't do those things. I need more rules because if I don't have rules, how do I know that Jesus loves me and I love him, right? I need rules to follow in order to know that. Both then and now, people are talking about Jesus and then they're saying, but there's more. There's more knowledge. There's more to this that we have to do. There's more to this than we have to accomplish. What Paul was writing this letter to do is to negate what was being said then and to negate what was being said now. What he's saying is, there is no more than Jesus. He is the fullness of God. He is everything you need to know. And in fact, a relationship with him completes you in your faith. What he's saying is, there isn't some other philosophy that's going to bring something in and is going to broaden your faith and deepen it. There isn't some sort of other rules you're going to add on beyond him that are going to broaden your faith or deepen it. There is no more than Jesus. He really is everything. And let me explain it this way, because of course you'd say, so you mean I'm never supposed to do anything after I meet Jesus? Well, that's not the case. Of course, we want you to grow spiritually. We want you to develop. But let me say it this way, okay, so we can make it clear. You do not grow spiritually by understanding something more beyond Jesus. You do not grow spiritually by understanding something more beyond Jesus, more knowledge, more wisdom, more rules. That's not how you grow spiritually. You grow spiritually by understanding something more about Jesus. That's how you grow spiritually. 
He says, you don't need this outside information. You don't need more rules. You just need to know more about this Jesus. He is the fullness of God. And I can tell you, if you've been a believer for a little while, and you don't think that, where you think, oh, I know all there is to know about Jesus, you don't know anywhere near enough. If you go, I've read Jesus too many times, I'll tell you, you've read Jesus too few times. If you say, I know Jesus through and through, I'd say, you don't, you're lying to yourself. He is the fullness of God. You can spend a lifetime and then an eternity after that trying to get to know him and you will never get tired. That you have this connection to him and that you can understand. And some of that connection isn't just reading more things. Some of it is actually trusting him, walking with him through situations where you understand who he is, right? We have some, yes, right? Right? Anybody else? You see, I've walked through that and then I knew more about Jesus on the other side of it that I wouldn't have known. That you grow spiritually not by understanding something more beyond him, but understanding something more about him. In fact, let's jump back to that verse two, uh, verse two six through seven. Here's what he says. Now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Continue. This is so good. Listen to me. There's tons of you who you have a relationship with Jesus. You don't need something new. You don't need a new preacher. You don't need a new church. You don't need a new podcast. You don't need a new translation. You just need to continue. There are so many people who are believers and they're like, oh, the faith doesn't really work for me. And the reason why is they've never put this word in their vocabulary. Continue. It's like when people tell you, "Uh, you know what, the gym doesn't work for me. Hmm. And you want to ask them, right, like, how many times did you go to the gym? And they're like, I went for a week once. And you're like, yep, lacking continue, weren't you? Of course it didn't work for you. We do that with faith. Oh, I went to church. It didn't work for me. And you go, uh, how many times did you really actually go? Did you participate in a real community? I went once or twice. I, I snuck in after the songs, and then I left before pastor got over. I mean, I didn't talk to anybody, but it didn't work for me. And you're like, continue, bro. Continue. you got to put in some time on this if you're going to do this. In fact, here's what he says next, which is so good. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. And then your faith will grow strong in the truth that you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Notice what he says is he doesn't say that your roots will, will spread out to touch a bunch of different things. He's not saying, well, your spiritual roots need to grow out and grab onto a bunch of things, you know, Jesus and some other stuff and some other, and then you'll feel like you are, you know, you're solid in your faith. He says, no, I don't need your roots to spread out. I just need them to grow straight down into this one and only Jesus. And if it grows straight down into this one and only Jesus, this is what's amazing, it'll hit bedrock and then your lives will begin to be built up on top of him. Because he is this firm foundation. He says you'll grow strong in truth. You'll overflow with thankfulness. Man, how good is that? He says the idea is that you don't grow spiritually by looking at something outside of Jesus. You grow by by learning something more about who he is and inside of him. In fact, I love this quote. There's this guy named Dr. Warren Wearsby, and he is awesome. He's like a Bible commentator, old school dude from years and years and years ago. And when I read this, I was like... Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Check out this quote. A Christian spiritual growth is not by addition, but by nutrition. Amen. Oh, snap, Warren. Oh, sna- I read that and I'm like, Dr. Warren Wearsby bringing it in hot from like 50, 60 years ago, right? 
Dang, it's not by addition, but by nutrition. He says, you don't need something else to be added to your faith in Jesus that you're going to continue to grow. You think, oh, I know Jesus. I need to know something else. I need some other philosophy. I need some other idea. He says, no, you don't. What you just need is to keep eating that same good meal that that Jesus gave you. You just need to continue to eat the right things and drink the right things. I wonder at the fact, of course, the fact that when Jesus was here, he constantly referred to himself as bread, as wine, the idea that he was water, that he was this thing that we would fill ourselves with. And he was giving us this idea that it's like, you need to consume who I am daily to survive, that I'm this water that you would drink to satisfy your thirst, that I'm this bread that you would eat to satisfy your hunger. And I love what Warren says. He says, it's not like you need something new. You just need to keep on eating, right? Some people are starving right now. Some of you, the reason why you wonder, why do I feel weak? Why do I feel sad? Why do I feel depressed? You are starving spiritually. You are not eating. You are not continuing in proper nutrition. And you wonder why you feel so lost. Jesus is called the plan in verse 2. Not a plan, the plan. In fact, in verse 9, he ends up calling him the fullness of God. Is it any wonder that we wouldn't need to look past the fullness of God for something more, right? I mean, wouldn't that just seem antithetical, right? Oh, he's the fullness of God, but I need something more than that. You're like, the fullness of God, right? Man. But it all comes back to, um, it all comes back to this, this situation of how it was presented. Because the same thing that was happening in Colossae was happening today, is happening today. It wasn't that they were saying, Jesus isn't the answer, we have the answer. Because the Christians in Colossae would have, they would have pushed back on that, right? If they would have said, oh, I know that you guys believe in Jesus, but you know what? Jesus isn't actually true. Let me tell you what is true. And then they brought out something else. The church of Colossae would have said, no, 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 that's, that's not right. We know that Jesus is true. What happened was something that's so much more sneaky, so much more underhanded, and so much more dangerous back in Colossae and today. They came and they said, oh, no, no, we love Jesus. We have nothing against Jesus. We just have something more to go along with him. We're not telling you you can't worship Jesus. You can worship Jesus, absolutely. You can worship Jesus. But, you know, I mean, this, this Buddhist stuff is really, really, it's impressive. You need to look at this, you know, in this Eastern philosophy, this is really, you need to bring this in, in this other philosophical idea. In fact, there are whole religions like that. If you ever talk to people who are Mormons, if you ever talk to people who are Jehovah's Witness, they'll tell you right away, oh, I love Jesus. We don't have anything against Jesus. But then you start looking and they're like, but, you know, you need more of this and you need more of this. And you're like, hmm, interesting, right? There's this kind of addition beyond it. And that's what the Gnostics were coming in, saying there's this other information that's important for us to bring into this. And I have these feelings that I think I'm feeling revelation from God right now that that disagrees. We don't disagree with Jesus, but there's more. And the Jewish legalists were saying the same thing. Oh, no, no, we love Jesus. Nothing against Jesus. But, you know, obviously Jesus didn't tell us everything. He didn't speak. There must be a lot more to this, and there's probably more rules that he didn't tell us that we need to follow. There's more tradition that we need to follow. That was happening in Colossae, and the same thing is happening today in the church. People from both directions are trying to say, we have nothing against Jesus. There's just, there's more. But it comes down to a philosophy on how we see Jesus. There's this differentiation between these two words. They sound very, very similar, but they mean substantially different things. And it's the word prominent and preeminent. 
prominent and preeminent. There's this word prominent, and prominent means that it stands out. I can show you a picture of prominent, okay? If these represent all of the things that are important in your life, the things that you care about, the things that matter to you, the things that form your life, all of that stuff, you could put whatever labels you want under every single one of them. If we were to look at the ones that are standing above, we would say these are all prominent. These are prominent. They're more than three times more important than these other things. These six things are prominent. They stand out as important. But the picture changes when we look at the other word. This is a picture of preeminent. This is a picture of preeminent. And just, just for reference, all of these values are the exact same as the last slide. These values didn't change. We still have things that are prominent, but then there is this one that stands so much bigger that when we scale back to see it, everything else seems to shrink down to almost the same level. And this is preeminent. Preeminent means the one thing supreme over everything. Means not the idea of it just stands out. It means it stands miles and miles and miles ahead of everything else. Listen to me. Jesus is not prominent. He is preeminent. Amen. This is the differentiation. Many people would come and say, no, no, we love Jesus. We just like these other things too. And they say, no, Jesus is still prominent in my life, but these other things are, are prominent too. And let me tell you, that is not the place that Jesus will reside in your life. Jesus says, I am preeminent. I am the one thing above everything. And in fact, everything shrinks down when you look at that. In fact, there is a verse that still to this day, to really understand and grasp it, it is terribly difficult, in which Jesus one time says, if you were to actually love me the way you should love me, your next closest love for your mom or for your kids would look closer to hate than love. Because of my preeminence, everything else looks so much smaller that it actually would look closer to hate than to love. And people were just like, whoa, that seems crazy, Jesus. And he says, that is my place. I am not prominent where I can be added into these different things. I am preeminent. And that's really the idea. The reason why when you think that, you think that seems extreme is because you might be thinking of Jesus coming into your life in the wrong manner. You might think that you are living your life and you're doing your thing, and then what you do is you just invite Jesus to like come be your homeboy, Right? Like, I was cool, I was doing okay, then Jesus became my co-pilot, even better, right? Like, he's my homeboy now, I have, you know, him next to me, and everything just got one step better. That is not how our faith journey happens. In fact, here's what is said in this very next section in Colossians as Paul is talking about this, trying to explain how it is that Jesus interacts with us when he comes into our life. He says this, when you came to Christ... You were circumcised. Didn't expect to see that word this morning, right, guys? But not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting way of your sinful nature. Now, if you're wondering, why on earth are we talking about that word? It's because, of course, he was talking to people who were founded in a Jewish faith. And circumcision was a Jewish tradition. And the reason why you did this to your young boys was to mark them physically from right after their birth that they belonged to God, that they were set aside and even their body bared the marks of the fact that they were trusting God. He says, Christ came into you, but when he did, it's not like he gave you some sort of physical surgery to mark you. He did a spiritual cutting in which he actually cut away something that you wouldn't want in your life. He cut away your sinful nature, the very nature of your sinfulness he cut away when he met with you. 
He says this, You were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him then you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. He continues, You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And to jump down to Colossians 2.20, he says this, You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. He says, You have died with Christ. He says, if you think that you're walking in this life and then you just like added Christ in, like you just add some pepper or salt onto your food and it tastes better, right? Like just throw some Jesus on there, right? It'll be even better, right? Bring him along. He can ride in my, in my, in my co-pilot chair. He says, you've missed the entire perspective. If, if you have that perspective, I can see how you would think that Jesus was just meant to be prominent in your life. But that's not what happened. He says, here's the reality. You were dead. And then Christ came into your life and he made you alive. And he said, not only that, but then he made you dead to this world. And that's a fascinating thing where I take the title for this entire series. Let me bring it into a modern idea for you. Okay. You guys know what the witness relocation program is, right? Everybody witness relocation. You've seen that in movies, things like that, right? The idea of that program is that there are people who know so much or have so much information against somebody or they testify against somebody who is so powerful and so bad that they agree that if you are to come, ahead, come forward with this idea, they will definitely have you killed, right? There's no way that you can stay safe after you bring this knowledge. You are as good as dead if you bring this forward. So the Witness Relocation Program takes these people, takes them away, and gives them a new life somewhere else that they can live, right? Here's what Paul is saying. For you, you were a dead man or woman walking. You had racked up this massive debt, and the people that you owed, they were coming to get you. It was only a matter of time. You were dead walking. They were coming to get, for, get you. You were going to die at the end of this world, that the devil was working on you. And listen, the wrath of God was coming. And every sin that you had ever had in your life, it was coming to payment. And you were going to die. And he says, but what happened is, is Jesus rushed into your life. And with his death on the cross, what he did was, it's almost like he took you and he had you die with him. It's almost like he like he staged your death, like you were dead to the people who you owed. And then all of a sudden, he took you and he had a new life waiting for you somewhere else. But this is what's so amazing, because Jesus did it. He's not saying, well, that's kind of like what it is. He says, it's what I did. What I did when I came into your life is I let you die. The you that was walking around, that owed all of this debt, the you that had racked up all of this sin, all of those things, when you came to me, what I did is I let that person die. And since you died, no one's knocking on the door looking to collect anymore. Since you died, right, they figured, well, I guess we're not going to get anything for that. But he says, then what I did is I brought you over here and I resurrected you into this new life that I had for you. I took you away, and now you have this complete new life. And he said, because of that, as far as the world is concerned, 
you're dead. It's like almost like you staged your death and now the world doesn't know where to find you because you're dead in their eyes. And they go, well, we're never going to find him. We're never going to get that payment. We're never going to get that comeuppance because, you know, the guy, the girl, they're dead, right? And he says, because of that, now you're dead to the world and you have this new life in Christ. And he says, and that's what gets you to the idea where you understand that he isn't just prominent. He is preeminent. He is everything. He rescued me from something that I had no chance of fixing. And not only did he just pay off that debt, but then he took me and he gave me this new life that I have if I'm a Jesus follower in this way. Friends, if you are a Jesus follower, what it means is you are now living the new life of Christ that he gave you as he is inside of you and that you are dead to this world around you. So when people come and they start saying, well, there's more than this Jesus, you need more than that, you absolutely step back and you're like, there's no way there's more than Jesus. There's no way there's more than Jesus. I mean, he's everything. He did everything in my life. He is my everything. And he says, not only that, when people are saying there's more around him, when people even come and they start talking religiously about like, well, you got to do this and you got to do this and you got to do this. He says, if you have that preeminent view of Jesus, you go, no, 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 that, that, that can't be the case. Jesus is everything. There's nothing beyond him. There's no more than Jesus. He is my, my everything. In fact, I love how Paul finishes this section. He actually steers right towards this because I think at first he was kind of really blasting those Gnostics who were trying to bring this outside information. And now he kind of swings the barrel over and he points at those Jewish legalists who are trying to say there's all this stuff that's got to happen. And here's what he says in the next phrases. He says, so don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or what you drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. I love that picture. He says, these religious people who are trying to say, what's faith? Well, it's this and it's this and it's don't do this and it's do do this. He says, it's like people who are worshiping shadows instead of lifting their eyes and realizing the thing that's casting the shadow is right there. Why would you worship a shadow when the thing that makes the shadow is right there? How silly, right? He continues. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying that they've had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they're not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and, as, excuse me, and it grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ. And he has set you free from the spiritual powers of the world. So why would you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teaching about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. But they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. He says, all of these religious people are saying, oh, no, no, Jesus, we love Jesus, but there's got to be more. There's more of this thing. There's more of this thing. And he says, and when they come to you, he says, if you really understand who Jesus is, you're, you're dead to all of that. You realize, how on earth would our faith be about something I eat or something I don't eat, right? This is so much bigger than that. You're, you're looking at shadows instead of the real thing. And here's what I love. He says, this won't help actually conquer your evil desires. Now, let me, let me clarify this and, and bring it so you understand it. I'm not saying there aren't things that we shouldn't eat or drink or smoke or whatever that situation is. Of course there are, things that are not beneficial to us. 
But that being said, he says the reason why we do this is important. He says, if you think that you can follow a list of things to do and that is going to be your faith, it is not going to work. He says, you can do all of these things that seem like they're really important because they, they require strong devotion and pious self-denial, but they actually do nothing in conquering your evil desires. Can I bring it all the way up and just translate it to a simple statement that you're going to be able to grasp? Would you like that? Really, really simple. Here's, here's what it is. Acting like a Christian doesn't make you one. Amen. He says, just you acting like a Christian, like people would say, well, Christians aren't supposed to do this, or Christians are supposed to do this, or they're supposed to do this. He says, acting like one won't make you one. Because listen, faith isn't built on a list. Faith isn't built on a list. It's built on love. It's built on this relationship with this Jesus. I always say it this way. When I start talking to people who come and they start their faith, and, and we are, are blessed as a church. I hope you realize that, the fact that every single week we have people who are here who are just getting started in their faith, that we aren't some old church of saints sitting around, but every week we have people who are coming through who are just exploring their faith, and that is the church we always want to be. And sometimes people will say, man, you know, it's kind of like, they're, man, they got a mess going on in their life, and they got this, right? And don't you think you should talk to them about that? And don't you think you should talk about how they're doing that. And, and not to say that there isn't wisdom that can be brought to that, but very often I will say to people, listen, listen, I can't get them to stop sinning enough to fall in love with Jesus. But I can get them to fall in love with Jesus enough to stop sinning. Yeah. Right? If I just tell them what to do and what not to do, that does not mean that they will actually become a Jesus follower. But if I convince them that Jesus really is the good person that he said he was, really is the amazing savior that he said he was, really was the eternally existing, creator of everything, purpose of everything, sustainer of everything, first in everything, solution to all sin, and that he wants a personal relationship with you in which he empowers your life and gives you a new life, then all of a sudden in that relationship you will begin to change that that will change you from the inside out. Friends, it's a relationship. It's just the same as a marriage. If you're in a marriage, did you know that if, if you're doing things in the marriage just because that's what you're supposed to do as a married couple, that's not good enough? Like if you go home to your spouse, you can try this, especially guys, try this one for me. See how it works out for you, okay? Go home to your wife and tell her, you know I didn't cheat on you this week. <laughs> and then follow it up by this, because I know that's our rule. Her response will be short and filled with interesting words. My guess is you would get two words that don't go together in a nice fashion, right? Listen, if you go, I, I haven't cheated on you because I know that's our rule, you would say, that's not the reason why we don't cheat on each other. A marriage isn't based on a list. A marriage is based on love. The reason why we don't sleep with other people is because we love each other. And we want our intimacy above everything else. We don't do that because that's the rule. We do that because we love each other. This is the same thing with our faith. We don't do things because it's the list. It's the things we're supposed to do. And listen to me. If you do live your faith following a list of things that you think you're supposed to do and not do, I give it a year to two tops. Maybe if you're really good, three or four. And it will burn out. 
and it will disappear. Because if it's not founded on you believing in Jesus and loving him, it will not last. It will not last. If you are a true believer, you realize that, that Christ has rescued you from the debt you have, taken you and given you this new life, and you make him preeminent in your life, the one thing above everything. And when you do that, you kind of become dead to everything else what people are bringing you. Yeah, but this idea. Yeah, but this idea. And you go, no, Jesus. And people come and they start laying up all these different things, but you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. And you go, no, Jesus. He's the answer. He's my one thing. There isn't more than Jesus. If anyone ever tries to tell you, yeah, but there's more, you can tell them there's not. Paul is very, very clear that what we need to do as we grow is learn more about him and delve into who he is. He is the answer. So let me ask you this question as we finish today. Is Jesus prominent or preeminent in your life? Is Jesus prominent or is he preeminent? Is he important? But maybe there's a lot of things that are important. Or is he preeminent where everything sits below this, this one thing, that he is the supreme over everything else that stands head and shoulders above everything else, and all the other things have to fall in line behind that. Maybe for you as a, as a believer, you're a Jesus follower. And Paul was writing to Jesus followers in Colossae. He's burned a bunch of people who didn't know about Jesus. But maybe you've been getting convinced by the more of around Jesus, right? Kind of the Gnostic liberal idea of, well, there's this truth, or there's this truth, or you've been having these feelings or these thoughts, or maybe you've been kind of delving into some other things and some other spiritual things, or you're still reading horoscopes, believing that's going to tell you something, or all these other weird things, and you're kind of adding the more beyond it, and you realize, I, I, I've gotten off base. It's Jesus. It's only Jesus. Or maybe you're the believer that you started to believe the more, but your more is you started to think that Following Jesus must be all these rules that you place after him, right? And I need to do this, and I don't need to do this, I need to do this. And I'm not saying he might not bring things into your life to cut out or to begin doing, but if you're just doing those as a list that you're going to follow, I'm telling you it's going to fail. Or perhaps maybe you're in the situation that you've never, ever made him prominent or preeminent in your life. You don't have a relationship with Jesus at all. You're here exploring that faith. And maybe right now you don't know what that is. And I would tell you, please keep continuing, right? Give it time for Jesus to speak into that. Or maybe you're at the place where you realize that actually makes sense. That idea of me being at a place where I know, man, I, I know there's a comeuppance coming for all of the sin that I have in my life. I can feel that. There's something that's going to come in my life, and I realize that. And if Jesus is willing to come do this work in which he lets that me die and brings a new one, I'm willing to lay my life in his hands today and trust that maybe he has a better plan for me. And you can take that step this morning. Would you do me a favor? Would you close your eyes, bow your head just for a minute? I just want to give everyone a chance to respond. I pray, first of all, God, for all those who might be believing the lie of more. More things, more information, more stuff. Or people who might be believing the idea of more religion, more of this, more rules. I ask right now that you would focus in their mind on you and you alone. That you are the one solution, God. And for those who are here who maybe right now you want to take that step of faith. You don't have everything figured out. That's not what this is about. What it's about is about taking a step of faith to put your life in Jesus' hands and saying, Jesus, I want to follow after you. Would you please give me that 
new start, as you talked about. I'll begin to follow you. I'll, I'll work this faith out as we go. Don't have everything figured out, but I want to take a step of faith and trust you. If that's you, I just want to give you an opportunity. It's going to count to three. You just shoot your hand above your head. I'll pray for you. Don't miss it if it's you. You can kind of feel it's you right now because that's how you know. One, two, three. Shoot up your hands if it's you. Yeah, I see you, ma'am. Yeah, I see you, sir. Absolutely. Yeah, I see you, ma'am. I see you, sir. Yeah, I see you, ma'am. Absolutely. Anyone else today, it's not too late if it's you. Yep. You can put your hands down, and we're just going to say a simple prayer. And this prayer isn't magical in any ways, but it's just going to guide our heart. Maybe you didn't raise your hand, but you still want to say this prayer for the first time. If you've prayed this prayer before, would you pray it aloud with them? We're just going to whisper a prayer right now, a prayer of faith to Jesus. Would you say, Lord Jesus, I am sorry for my sin. Thank you for dying in my place. Please become the king of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you celebrate with those people who took that step today? Man, how amazing.